Well, do turn with me in your Bible stacks, chapter 12. We're following this uh, second part of Luke's work in which he describes the continuing work of Jesus during the lifetime of the apostles as Jesus is enthroned in glory and as he introduces this new thing, this new creation that he has brought about. We've seen signs of the end times as uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven. We've heard sounds of the end times as people speak in many languages the wonderful works of God. We've seen the creation of a new humanity as reflecting the picture of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the original intention of God that humanity should increase and multiply and cover the earth with godly people. So the church is increasing and multiplying as the Word of God spills out of Jerusalem. We've seen people from all over the world come to Jerusalem, be touched by the Word of God, and then take that Word elsewhere. We've seen Gentiles come under the effects of that Word. The nations, the nations are are hearing the sound of the gospel. The new creation has begun. It's an exciting book as, as the Spirit of God works through the apostles. We've seen people uh, able to walk who were, who were lame. We've seen dead people come to life by the power of the gospel. We've seen the signs of the ends of the age that have come upon the church of God. But lest you think that the end has finally come, lest you think that the time to come has, is here in all its fullness and completeness. There are these reminders throughout the text that, in fact, we live in the already but the not yet. We live in, in between the times of the new age has come, but the new age has not come in all of its fullness. So there's been a wave of persecution. People scattered from Jerusalem. God has turned that round for the growth of the church. We've seen... Corruption from inside the church. We're reminded that we're not perfect people yet. We're not in glorified bodies with spirits that are perfect yet. The church is not perfect yet. You just need to look at the people sitting beside you to see that that is still the case. And in that wave of persecution, God has done something remarkable. He has transformed the persecution by transforming the persecutor. And we've seen the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Well, now all hail is going to break loose on the church once more. Chapter 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some of those who belonged to the church. Persecution isn't always bad for the church. Sometimes God turns persecution around and makes it the very vehicle by which he carries the gospel further, though I don't think we should seek persecution as one of the chief marks of a growing church and try to uh, seek it out by our own foolishness. But nonetheless, persecution often serves the interests of church growth. As we look at this chapter this evening, I want you to notice there are three mysteries. At least there are three mysteries that strike me in this chapter. First of all, there's the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of providence, and the mystery of prayer. There's the mystery of iniquity. Herod. Who is this Herod. Not Herod who killed the little babies at Bethlehem. This Herod is a different man. We'll see in a moment where he comes from. But he had spent his childhood in Rome. He knew the main players in Rome. He knew the emperor who had given him the kingdom that he now possessed. Uh, he was a contemporary of another emperor who was going to add to his kingdom, Judea and Jerusalem. He had a growing influence. And although he was only a puppet king, this Herod was obviously 
well-known and well-established, known normally as Agrippa I. We'll see in a moment why it is that Luke, in his account, wants to remind us that he is Herod Agrippa I. We're told two things about this man. We're told that he was determined to pursue the eradication of the church. How do you kill the church? You kill the church by aiming at its leaders. And so he aims for the leaders of the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw it please the Jews, it says, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now I said, I'd tell you a bit about which Herod this is, because there are three Herods in the Bible, just to confuse you. There are three Herods. There's Herod the Great, his grandfather, who had died in A.D. 4. This was the Herod who instigated the pogrom, the massacre of those innocent children at Bethlehem. Then there was Herod Antipas, his, uh, this Herod's uncle. He had been Herod, you remember the one that Jesus referred to as the fox, Herod the fox. It was he who arrested John the Baptist and served John the Baptist's head on a platter, you remember. This was the Herod that conspired to have Jesus killed. And Luke makes this link in our minds. He wants us to think as we read about this Herod, about this family connection with Herod that was involved in the death of John the Baptist and the other Herod who was involved in the massacre of the innocents at Bethlehem. This Herod uh, is Herod uh, uh, is Herod Agrippa. Now, not only are there three Herods, but there are three Jameses in the New Testament. This will confuse you even more. You've no idea the scholarship that goes into finding these things out for you. Well, there was James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know very much about James, the son of Alphaeus. He's just there, named, and he's in the Bible. Then there was James the Just. He's the brother of Jesus, or the stepbrother of Jesus. He's called the Lord's brother in the Bible. He wrote the little epistle of James that we know, and he becomes very important in the church. And he's the James that's referred to at the end of the story. So the two Jameses in the story, one gets killed and the other is referred to at the end of the story. And this is the James I'm referring to, James the Just. Tell James and the disciples what has happened. He becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church. And then thirdly, there's this James, the James who's killed. James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. James, who belonged to the triumvirate of Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Jesus transfigured before them. This James, who was with James and Peter, or John and Peter, who was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the James, who is singled out by Herod. Herod, who, although he was not pure of Jewish descent, there was some Jewish blood in him, just enough to make him credible for the job. This James wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews of his time, and I think particularly because of the context here, having heard of these Gentiles who are now coming into this new Israel, this new Christian movement, perhaps there's more power or push on, James, or on Herod to eradicate this Christian movement and to kill it at the head. He's determined to eradicate the church of God. Second thing we're told about him is that he's determined to gain the approval of the world. That is his world. Here is one of the rulers of this age. And what is driving Herod is popularity. He kills James and you notice it says he saw that it pleased 
the Jews. In other words, these are his constituents. He is a king, a puppet king, but he wants as best he can to keep the Jews on side, and he was seeking his approval ratings. And like any politician seeking approval ratings, he's prepared to do what needs to be done. And when we read this and we see that this is pleasing the Jews, we already, if we have been following the stories so far, realize that things have shifted back in Jerusalem. Things have moved since Acts chapter 2. Back in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit fell and the people are converted and they're added to the church, we're told that the people of God, the new people of God, meeting together in the temple courts and from house to house, one of the comments that is made is that they were finding favor with all the people. In the early days, they were finding favor with all the people. And perhaps only as the Christian movement grew, as, as more and more people joined it, and then as it became the object of persecution, did that begin to change. Now that period of favor is over. Now their day in the sun is gone. Their life in Jerusalem is no longer a kind of cozy little life where they are untouched by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Now the church is under pressure. There's general disquiet, fed by reports, no doubt, of Gentiles being seen in the company of these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. And so he moves again, having killed, Herod, uh, having killed James, Herod moves to arrest Peter. Now let me just say this, that the message of Jesus is always going to stick in the craw of people devoted to the praise of men. In John chapter 4, verse 44, Jesus said to the glory-seeking Pharisees, How can you believe, you who receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, you cannot seek glory from people and the glory of God at the same time. You either want God's eyes to be on you, you either want the smile of God's approval in your life, or you want the smile of approval of other people. It's a mark of maturity in the Christian when you get to that place in your Christian life where you don't care what people think of you, where you're not anxious to get the approval and the applause of men, but you want the approval and the applause of God. Going right to the heart of Herod's unbelief, Herod's problem is this, that he sought the approval of people before the approval of God. Faith in God is God-glorifying. Glory-seeking is self-serving. Now you can see this desire to be recognized. If you glance down to the end of the story, you can see this desire to be recognized goes even further. It goes right to the very roots of this man's character. In verses 20 to 23, Tyre and Sidon, coastal cities in Syria, depended on Herod's breadbasket in Galilee, a little bit like California depends on Iowa, the breadbasket bread, bread of America. And they were anxious to keep in with Herod. They'd annoyed him in some way, and so they come, they come realizing that their food supply is in jeopardy. They come seeking how somehow to please Herod. And the fact that they were there wanting to please Herod, pleased Herod. He liked to be pleased. And he liked to be pleasing to people. And in a very special way, he liked to be pleased by showing himself off to be as powerful as he knew how. Whether that meant sitting in the royal seat on the throne, whether it meant making public speeches with regal pomp and ceremony in order to get the glory of the crowd, he was prepared to go anywhere to get this. Look at verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod 
put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, made an oration to them. In other words, what he's doing is pulling out all the stops. He's making every effort to let these people from Tyre and Sidon see that he's really somebody. He is Herod. He is Agrippa I. He is the king of this region. Forget about Rome. Forget about all those far distant people who have influence here where it really matters. On your home turf, here is the man. Think of Jesus' words. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. That's what Herod wants to be seen as. He's, he's manifesting his authority. He's displaying his right to rule. He's showing that he has at his fingertips the power to squeeze these little people from Tyre and Sidon. Or in his largesse to give to them generously to sell to them the goods and services they are seeking. And God lets it all play out. Do you notice? God lets it all play out at the end of the story so that the treason that is in his heart is manifested when the people in verse 22 shout out the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod is basking in the glory of it. He is luxuriating in the praise of men. He is feeding on the adulation of the crowd. And in that moment, it goes to his head and he feels like a god and not a man. Here is the mystery of iniquity. It goes to the heart of the character of men and women who see themselves opposed to God, who see themselves as God, who see themselves as the center of the world and to want the praise that belongs to the only God for themselves. We make ourselves, in a thousand ways, the center of the world. There is the mystery of iniquity. And it lies significantly in the hearts of every one of us here, as well as in the heart of men and women in the world. The second mystery in the text is the mystery of providence. For James is killed, and Peter is rescued. And that's a problem, I know, to some of you. Because you look at your life, I know you this, you've told me this. You look at your life, you see that in your life some bad things have happened. You look at other people's lives and you think good things have happened to them. Why do bad things happen to me and good things happen to them? Well, here in the story there are two men. Something bad happened to James, he was beheaded. You can't really get any worse than that. And something good happened to Peter. He's released from prison in the most amazing way, as we shall see. Why James? Here are James and John. You remember Jesus called them the sons of thunder. These are two passionate guys. Guys who could accomplish things. Gifted men. Men of tenacity. Go-getters. Men of high energy. You remember, these were the two men whose mother, Salome, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, uh, you've noticed my two boys? James and John, they'd look good. They'd look good in the kingdom of God if you could let them sit, one on the right hand and one on the left. Just think what that would look like, Lord. Great idea. Jesus didn't think it was a great idea, but, but Salome did. And you remember, spin off from that. Jesus says, no, they, they can't do that, but I'll tell you what they can do. These two men will share my cup of suffering. Jesus said that about these two men. 
They won't get to sit in my right hand and my left, but they will get something even more significant. They will get to share in my cup of suffering. Here is Jesus' word being fulfilled here. Here's this young man in his 30s. He has a lifetime ahead of him, a lifetime of service, of fruitful service. His brother John is going to live possibly into his 90s. We, we don't know. Certainly into his 80s he's going to live a long life of fruitful service to the cause of God. Perhaps James could have lived that long effectively serving God, maybe writing more books of the Bible so that I'd have some stuff to preach on that hadn't been preached by previous ministers, which is getting pretty thin. So, why James? Why James? Why does God take this man? Why not take James, the son of Alphaeus? We don't know anything about him. <laughs> you know, we don't know anything about him. If he'd gone, nobody would have said boo. Nobody would have noticed. I have to apologize to him when I see him in heaven for just having said that. And you know, there are stories of people right throughout church history like this, aren't there? There are people like Robert Murray McShane, David Brainard, uh, Henry Martin, men who died in their 20s. And you think, here are these significantly gifted men, dead, before they're 30. I mean, I thought it was bad enough the other year there when somebody, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, sent me a birthday card. And in the birthday card he said, uh, dear, dear Liam, when John Calvin was your age, he was dead. I mean, what kind of birthday card? <laughs> what kind of person does a thing like that to a man? Really, I ask you. But here's, here are these men, dead by 30. Can you imagine? I mean, you feel as if... You've done nothing. I get to this age and I think I've done nothing with my life. And that these men are cut off in the prime of their lives. Why? Why, James? I'm sure that the church must have looked at the death of James and thought, you know, the church needs men like this. The church needs men like this. And it's true. We stand amazed at the sovereignty of God and we sing deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up His bright designs and works His Sovereign will. And James doesn't, uh, Luke rather, doesn't even explain what God is doing here. He leaves us to work it out for ourselves. He's already, he's already been teaching us as he's been quoting these early Christians in their prayer time. They believed that God was sovereign. They believed God was in charge. God is in control. They believed Jesus was on the throne of David. Jesus is ruling the world for the benefit of his church. There are all these things that have been happening in the book of Acts of the demonstrations that King Jesus is running the world and he's running the world for the, in the interests of his kingdom and his church in the world. And it's left for us to stand back in amazement and say, I don't understand what he is doing here and to recognize the sovereignty of God. Hudson Taylor, who was making his journey as a young man of the age of, the age of about 23, I think, to... China on a clipper called the Dumfries is making his way there for I think it's a six-month journey in those days to get from England to China and they hit a very severe storm the crew felt that uh, everybody was going to die they told this to Hudson Taylor who was the only uh, person who wasn't on the crew on board the ship and uh, the captain of the ship said to Hudson Taylor what are you what are your plans now here we're going to we're going to drown at sea the ship is going to sink it's taking in water, it's, we can't do any more for it. What are your plans now to be a missionary to China? He was mocking him, of course, and Hudson Taylor replied, well, it is enough that he finds me obedient. It is enough 
that he finds me faithful. James's head was chopped off, and the moment his head was chopped off, he was with the Lord Jesus. He was hearing the Lord Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. doesn't matter how long you've got to live. doesn't matter how many years you have ahead of you. What is important is that at this moment you are found faithful. Why does God deliver Peter? There's a second question that arises. Okay, God hasn't delivered James, but why does God deliver Peter? I mean, Herod, Herod is arrogant. He's self-exalting. Jesus says, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And the Lord rescues Peter from Herod. Well, at one level, what God, the Lord is doing here is he's saying to Herod, slapping him in the face, he's saying, you thought you had all this sewn up. You thought having Peter in jail was enough. You thought that you'd done the business. You've killed James. You're setting Peter up to be killed the next day. And on the very evening before his execution, he's no longer in your custody. So at one level, what the Lord is saying to Herod is, you think you're a big deal and you think you're in control and you think you have the mastery of the situation. You're a fool of a man to think that. God is demonstrating that he is sovereign. The Lord showed Herod and the church and us today that when James was martyred just days before, it was not because the Lord couldn't save him. The Lord saves Peter because he wants to demonstrate to us, I could have saved James. Of course I could have saved James. I didn't save James because I'd said to him, the cup that I drink, you also will drink. He was fulfilling his word. So God can release and God can sustain and God can empower people in martyrdom. And the reason for the story of Peter and not James is that God is showing us that he is in control over this little Herod in both these cases. That martyrdom is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. That martyrdom can serve the kingdom of God. Paul, writing in Philippians, says this, Most of the brethren here have made it, have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. In other words, the martyrdom of a, per, of a believer can in fact feed the confidence of the people of God elsewhere. It was doing that for the people in Philippi where, when Paul was in prison. It fires us with zeal. Tertullian, the Christian defender of the faith who died in 225 AD says this, We multiply whenever we are mourned mourn down by you. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Jerome, about a hundred years later, writes, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others. By enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. The church grows. So it isn't as though God has fumbled the ball and then scored a touchdown with, uh, with Peter. If he hands it over to others for a little few turns, a few downs, it's because he knows a better way to win the game. Amazing what I've learned in the last few months. <laughs> for James it meant death, but for Peter it meant freedom. The differences between these two men are only in the timing. Peter is going to die. He is going to die crucified in Rome on Vatican Hill. He will join James one day. 
Not only that, there's going to be a general resurrection. And the just will be raised to life eternal, clothed in resurrection bodies. Only a matter of time. Doesn't matter when you die, how you die, you will die. Doesn't matter when you die, how you die, you will be raised from the dead. And if you're a believer, raised to everlasting life. Nothing changes in the ultimate game plan. But then the third thing in this story is the mystery, not only of providence and iniquity, but the mystery of prayer. We're given in verses 4 and 5 a glimpse into two worlds. One in which the powers of this age have captured, imprisoned, and humiliated an apostle of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, the church, a group of people based still in private homes, appear, appealing to a superior power, a power superior to the power of the state, the power of Herod. Peter has been captured, humiliated, the narrative detail shows us how securely Peter was imprisoned, thus heightening the wonder of the story and the rescue. It's during the celebration of the Passover, so he's not killed immediately. That, you know, we've got to wait till that's over so that we don't offend the Jews. So he's, he's being retained until after. And it's the night before the after, the execution, that these events happen. There are four, four squads of soldiers, that is, four groups of four soldiers that watch him through the four watches of the night. Two soldiers in the cell with him to which his feet are bound in chains. Two soldiers outside the cell guarding the cell. Here is the might of Rome obviously in control of the situation. Meanwhile, back at the church, people are praying. People are calling on God. There's a prayer meeting going on, verse 5. Peter is in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And the cynic looks at the story and says, well, did they not pray for James? Did they forget to pray for James? Well, of course they wouldn't have forgotten to pray for James. They would have prayed for him when he was arrested. They would have prayed for him right up until the time the axe fell on his head, severing it from his body. So what was wrong? Was their faith was their faith weak when they were praying for James? You know, the prosperity gospel teaches that's what they want us to think. They want us to think that, we, that when, when you pray for something and it doesn't happen the way you want it to work out, that that's a failure in your part. It's a failure in your faith. The Bible doesn't give us any authority for thinking that stuff. Other people, they say, well, when you pray, faith claims things from God. Faith walks up to God's face as it were and says, I want you to do this. And that when you're talking to God that way, the stronger you speak, the louder you go, the more intense you are, the more earnest you are, the more you bang the table, the more you lift your hands, the more you do bodily exercises, the more likely you are to get the attention of Almighty God. It sounds very much like the prophets of Baal trying to get Baal's attention in First Kings. It wasn't a failure in their faith. Let me tell you, it wasn't a failure in their faith. They were petitioning God. And God is as likely to say no to your prayers as He is to say yes. Some of you can just barely remember having parents when you were small. And they were as likely to say no to you as they were to say yes to you if they were good parents. And God is our Heavenly Father. So here's the story. 
When Herod is about to bring him out, we're told on that very night, Peter is sleeping. It's a great picture. Here's Peter, sound asleep. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, I think Peter's come to terms with the fact the Lord's told him he's going to die one day. He's going to be, he's going to be killed one day in line of service for him. And he's thought, well, this is, my, this is it. This is my moment. And he's sound asleep, absolutely. An angel, well, several things happen here. There's a bright light shines. It doesn't seem to wake him up. And there's kind of a bit of commotion as the angel of the Lord stands over him. There's an angel of the Lord standing over him. Now, you'd think, here he is sitting in prison. He's dozing off in between these two soldiers. You'd think that would get through to him. No, it doesn't. The text says the angel has to strike him to waken him up. He's, such, he's in such a deep sleep. The angel strikes him. Gives him a bit of a blow. I think angels are scary anyway, but when angels hit you, you're really in severe trouble. So he is, he's wakened up, and even then he doesn't totally. He's one of these people who's not really good at waking up in the middle of the night. We've, I've, got, I've boys who are like that. One boy in particular, particular like this. You, you know, you, he's in a daze for some time before he comes round. Peter is like that. Because the angel, you notice in the story, the angel has to start giving him staccato orders. Dress yourself. Put on your sandals. I mean, it's like your mother talking to you here. <laughs> Wrap your coat around you. Follow me, please. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And not only that, but there's a lot of noise going on because the shackles are just falling off him. They've just fallen off him. You know, the soldiers are there, you know. They're sitting there. They're sound asleep, and they're not waking up by the noise of these iron shackles falling off. The doors are swinging open. He's passing these other guards, and he's going on, following the angel. He's in a world all of his own. He's absolutely out of it. Eventually, he finds himself out in the street, and the cold air of the night kind of brings him to, and he thinks, is I having a dream there? Really? Oh, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hilarious. I think, the, I think we were meant to see the funny side of this whole thing. Because he, Peter came to himself, we're told in verse 10, and he says, Now I am sure. Duh! You're standing outside the prison. You know, you're feeling the cold air on your face. You're standing there. There's the prison. There's you. I mean, what, what more evidence do you need? And it says, you know, that the Lord, the angel, rescued me from the hand of Herod, echoing the language, by the way, of of Exodus, where God rescued Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. I hope you believe in the ministry of angels. John Patton, Patton with his first wife in the New Hebrides, the natives are threatening to burn down the house in which he and his wife are living. And all night long, John Patton and his wife spend their evening on their knees praying to God for deliverance. In the morning, the men have disappeared. Two years later, one of these men, tribespeople, is converted, the chief of the tribe is converted. And John Payton asked him if he can remember this incident. And he said, oh yes, I remember that incident well. So why did you not come and burn the house down as you were threatening? And the guy said, well, it was because of all those men in your house. You need to believe in angels. I hope you believe in angels because our lives are surrounded by the ministry of angels. Some people think we have a guardian angel. Sometimes some people think we have a whole host of angels. I think there are all kinds of angels that God uses for the benefit of his people. Well, once he's gotten his head around that, he heads off to the home of John Mark, whose folks have a large house and the church is meeting there. 
And he gets to the gate, one of these European houses that is surrounded by a wall with a gate. And uh, he goes to the gate and he starts to knock on the gate. He knocks for a long time on the gate. He's just been released from prison. He's knocking on the gate. I mean, you would think these Christians would wait, be awake when, they, when you've just been released from prison and you were going to be executed the next day. He keeps knocking on the gate, getting louder and louder. He knocks on the gate. And eventually, Rhoda hears him. Rhoda comes out. She says, who's that knocking on the gate? He says, it's Peter. And she recognizes his voice, the way Mary Magdalene recognized the voice of the Lord Jesus after he was raised. She recognizes his voice. And what does she do? I mean, what do you do when there's somebody who's been in prison and they're knocking on the gate and you hear their voice and you recognize who it is? Well, you leave them at the gate and you go inside to the people. He goes, she goes inside to the people. She finds the church. What are they doing? They're praying for Peter. They're praying for Peter to be released. She says to them, Peter's at the gate. Hey, this is amazing. Do you know what they start doing? They start having a theological discussion about whether or not... Well, first of all, they think she's off her skull. They think she's absolutely out of her mind. You're just being a silly girl. You know, she, what does she know about anything? I mean, St. Peter's there at the gate. And the more she insists upon it, the more she insists that it's true, they think, well, 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 maybe there is something out there. Maybe it's his angel, and there's a big discussion about whether you have a guardian angel or whether there's a host of angels. And there's a dispute among the brethren as to which one of these things is. And they're having this debate, theological debate, while Peter's at the gate getting a bit irate. That's a poem, by the way. Uh, poetic. Did you notice that? At the gate, a bit irate. Never mind. Uh, I thought it was good at the time. Uh, but he's at the gate, getting irate, knocking the door, trying to get their attention. I mean, do you not think that they really found this hilarious? Don't you think the early Christians must have laughed and laughed and laughed? Here they are, praying to God. God, deliver Peter. And the last thing they expected, the last thing they expected was that Peter would turn up at the gate. I want to tell you this is the mystery of prayer, that God is prepared to work with people like you and me who believe as much as they believed when they were praying that evening for Peter's deliverance. It is the most amazing thing that he has chosen, one, to accomplish his will in the world, two, to mobilize his people to pray for his will, and three, to accomplish his will in answer to the prayers of his very little believing people. That's the mystery of prayer. It's an astounding thing that God uses the prayers of the saints. He uses them, you see, because He doesn't need them, but He uses them for your benefit and mine. He uses them to build up the church's confidence in Himself, to help us, as it were, to be cooperating with Him in this great plan. He wants us to, to feel some of the energy and the blessing of, of seeing His will accomplished in the world. God does it for our sakes. But he engages us in this business of prayer. It's an amazing lesson. Peter motions to them with his hand. He, he, having woken up now, he encouraged them and been slow to believe, he now encourages them and tells them that God has been at work in the situation. Well, it's an amazing story. The angel of the Lord turns up twice in the story. Did you notice that? First time he turns up, he turns up to release old Peter from prison. And then at the end of the story, he turns up again 
He turns up to kill Herod. I said we'd pick up that story, remember? When they said it's the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. And immediately, the angel of the Lord smote him because he did not give God glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Like Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king who defiled the temple. Like Herod the Great, who killed the little children. Herod Agrippa was all eaten by worms. The decomposition that usually happens in the grave was brought forward to take him to the grave. And in that one act, you see, what is God doing in answer to the prayers of his people? He is puncturing the pretensions to divinity of this king, but also of all the little kings who assert themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Use the language of Isaiah. In Isaiah 14, speaking of the pride of the king of Babylon, you, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid low nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and will make myself like the Most High. And God says, no, you won't. And brings him down to nothing. The lesson is, you see, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, as Daniel reports. This is the God who says to the king of Babylon, you'll eat grass like an ox until you have learned that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Here is God in command. The chapter starts with Herod King James. The chapter ends with the Lord killing Herod. And the main point of the story is this. Let me, hear, let me make sure you hear this. If you oppose Jesus, you lose. You oppose Jesus, you lose. You may gain the world, you lose in the end. You may gain the applause of men, you lose in the end. You may feel that you have your hands on the levers of power in the world, you lose in the end. You oppose Jesus, you lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in the presence of God and in the presence of this congregation, you might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of your name. Amen.